Let me ask you to open up your Bibles this afternoon to the book of Romans and chapter 9. Romans and chapter 9. And today, uh, as we continue working our way verse by verse, we come to Romans 9, verses 24 through 29. Uh, Verses 24 through 29. And let me confess that uh, as I put together this sermon, I struggled to decide which direction to go in. Um, These particular verses carry a lot of weight, and the implications of these next verses are uh, pretty overwhelming. Uh, There is a word here to those who are presumptuous about their salvation. And there is a word here to those who are despairing that they could never be saved. There is a word in these verses about missions. There is a word in these verses about racial and ethnic reconciliation. There's a word in these verses about how to view modern Israel. There's a word here about how and why we as Christians can claim the Jewish Old Testament as our scriptures and why we can call Abraham our father. There is a word in these verses about the judgment of God. And first and foremost, there is a word in these verses about the greatness of God's mercy. And these verses speak both about the breadth of God's mercy and about the depth of God's mercy. And so those are just the points that stick out to me. And my guess is that as you read those verses, you might find even more. And so though I had planned to cover all of these verses in just one sermon, uh, what we're going to do is split these verses in half. And this week we're going to cover especially verses 24 to 26 And then next week we'll focus especially on verses 27 to 29. And I hope that that over these two messages you will uh, stay alert and come to this passage hungry because God has much to say to us here. But let's read Romans 9, 24 to 29. And to get the context we need, we need to start back at verse 22. So let's start back at verse 22. Romans 9, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become 
like Gomorrah. Now, as we come to verse 24, uh, Paul is going out of his way to help us rightly identify who it is that he is talking about. Because, you see, there's this group of people that he keeps referring to. He's been referring to them over many verses. In verse 23, he called them vessels of mercy. In verse 8, he called them children of God and offspring. Back in verse 6, he said that this is the group of people who belong to Israel. And so Paul is now going out of his way to rightly answer a question for us. And the question is, who is spiritual Israel? We know that physical Israel is not the true Israel. Because he told us that back in verse 6. No, true Israel, those who are children of God, those who are reckoned as the offspring of Abraham and Jacob, he told us that they are children of promise. They are miracle children. They are children chosen by God before they were born. But who are these people? Where do they come from? And Where can we find them? And Paul's answer in these verses contains two parts, and both of them were shocking to many people in the first century. And the first answer, and the one that we're going to focus on this morning, is that Gentiles are included as a part of the true Israel. This is what verses 24 through 26 is all about. So look at verse 24 again. Even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So Paul talks here about calling. You see that word called? He's talking about calling. God has called a people to Himself. And this is not the global call. The call that goes out to everyone. Uh, Certainly there is a sense in which every person on earth is being called to repent and turn to God. But that's not this calling. This is effectual calling. This is the kind of calling that brings about the very thing it commands. There is a calling that happens when someone hears the gospel and they hear the call to believe and the Spirit God comes into their heart, opens their eyes and gives them the very faith to believe. The greatest illustration of effectual calling is Jesus standing over dead Lazarus, a a stiff corpse no life in that body and Jesus says to Lazarus come forth and there was nothing in Lazarus to come forth but the very word of Jesus gave the very capability that it commanded and dead Lazarus was alive and stood up so also God is using the gospel and he's using it right now today to speak to the hearts of people that he has chosen And in His time, by His Spirit, that very calling gives them life. And they believe and they repent and they come to know Jesus Christ. Are you one of those people? Are you one of those who has received the effectual calling of God? It is these people, those who are effectually called, who are the vessels of mercy. 
who are the offspring of Abraham, who are the children of God, who are the true Israel. And Paul says in verse 24, shocking to many in the first century, that some of them are Gentiles. In fact, we now know that not only are some of them Gentiles, most of them are Gentiles. Most of the true Israel is Gentile. Now think about what that was like for some first century Jews hearing that. I mean, they had been raised their whole lives to believe that God was the God of the Jews only. That the Gentiles were Gentile dogs. Gentiles are unclean. Gentiles are filthy. God is too holy to have anything to do with pagan Gentiles. No, God's blessings are for the Jews alone. And Paul says, no. God's blessings are for those who are called from among the Gentiles as well as from among the Jews. And Mount Hermon, aren't we glad? Aren't we glad that that's true? I mean, we're here as a Gentile congregation. Aren't we glad that there is hope for the Gentiles? Where is Paul getting this? Because there are some who would argue that this is Pauline theology, that Paul was the first person to come up with this, that he made this up, and thus Paul is really the author of Christianity as we know it. Where is Paul getting this idea? Well, it did not come from Paul. If we wanted to, we could go back and look at the Gospels and look at Jesus teach this very same thing, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. But Paul goes further back. He quotes to us from the prophet Hosea. Do you see that? In verses 25 and 26, just like he's done all throughout this chapter, anytime he made a controversial statement, he backs it up with biblical support. Thus says God that this is true. And the verses he quotes are two different verses from the book of Hosea. He quotes first Hosea 2.23, and then he quotes Hosea 1.10. So let's get our minds around these quotes that he's bringing to us. Picture this with me. We have a man whose name is Hosea. And we're told in Hosea 1 that the first time that God chooses to speak to this man as a prophet, whether it was in a vision or a dream, we're we're not told, but God spoke to Hosea in a powerful, undeniable way, and this was the command that God gave to Hosea. Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, And have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So God comes into the life of Hosea, speaks to him in a dramatic way. And this is what God had to say to this man. Hosea, go marry a prostitute and have children with her. And through your relationship with this woman, I am going to speak to my people Israel. Now, that's a strange command, wouldn't you agree? That's a, that's a strange thing. It's not what you would expect God to say. But Hosea obeyed. We're told that he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. So Hosea obeyed God. He went and took for himself a wife. And now what happens next is that Hosea has three children with Gomer. And God gets the privilege of naming all three of his children. And they're not happy names. 
So listen to this. Child number one. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So the first child of Hosea was given a name to proclaim that God was going to bring an end to the kingdom of Israel. Child number two. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. And I will save them by the Lord their God. And I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. So the second child is named No Mercy. God says, I've run out of mercy for my people Israel. And the time of their destruction is at hand. Uh, In Hosea's own time, the Assyrians would come and they would wipe out this northern kingdom. The, The people of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel would cease to exist. Those who survived the attacks would be resettled among pagan peoples. They were not allowed to continue practicing their customs and their way of life. And they were integrated into the pagan peoples and ceased to exist as a kingdom of Israel. It would exist no more. And then there was a third child. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people. And I am not your God. Now, Herman, can you think of a more terrible name for a child? Not my people. Can you think of a more terrible statement to hear from God? You are not my people and I am not your God. And God was saying that to the Jews. God was saying that to physical children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These were people who before this had been called children of God. But because of their unbelief, because of their blatant disobedience, because of their refusal to trust their God and obey their God, they were being rejected by God. And that's what the book of Hosea is about. It's a book of doom and gloom. Except, there are moments in the book when God speaks of another day to come. And these are the promises from the book of Hosea, that Paul is latching onto right here in Romans 9. Because you see, right after God gives these terrible names to these three children, saying, I am not your God. Israel, you are not my people. I have no mercy for you. Then God said this to Hosea, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. All right, wait a minute, God. You just said that the children of Israel are no longer your people. You just said that you will show them no mercy. They've refused to trust you. How can you now say that the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea? Answer, 
Because in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, namely, that is, in the Gentile nations and among the Gentile peoples, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. So this is the lesson that Paul has learned from Hosea. He learned from Hosea that the children of Israel will be made up of a vast number of people, right? As many as sand on the sea, seashore, as many as stars in the sky. Israel is going to be numerous. Why? Because the children of Israel will include Gentiles who have been made children of God through faith. And so he's using Hosea to show that he didn't make this up. This has been God's plan from the beginning. Now, one reason this is so important for us to get is that Paul is going to bring this back to our attention in Romans 11. And there he's going to use the picture of a great olive tree. And the great olive tree represents the people of God. The true Israel, the offspring of Abraham, the vessels of mercy. They're pictured as a great olive tree. And the bottom of the tree is mostly Jewish. Right? Who made up most of the people of God in early human history? Most true believers in God before the time of Christ were Jewish. Now, there were exceptions. There were the Rahabs, right? But by and large, in Old Testament days, the, the, the bottom of the tree was a Jewish tree. The roots of the tree go down into the great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were the first that were given the promises of God. It was Israel at the very start of that nation that was given the law of God. It was Israel that was given the gospel in types and shadows. The prophets were given to them. And so the tree starts out as a Jewish tree, going down with roots into God's goodness to the Jews. And then Paul tells us in Romans 11 that some of the natural branches have been broken off. In other words, some of those people who physically come from Abraham Some of those people who had the blessings of being nourished by the roots of God's law and the priesthood and the prophets and having the scriptures, they did not believe them. They rejected God and God has rejected them and they are broken off branches. They may be ethnic Israelites, but they're no longer connected to the tree. And then Paul speaks of Gentiles in Romans 11. And he says that we, because this is us, we're in this picture. He says that we are like a wild olive shoot that has been grafted onto the tree. In other words, Abraham was not our father ethnically. And we were not among the peoples that were given the law and the promises and the prophets. But when we believe on Jesus Christ, we are grafted in. All of those things become ours. We Gentiles are now part of the true Israel being nourished by the roots. This is why we can call Abraham our father. This is why we can hold up the Old Testament Jewish scriptures and say they're our scriptures. And why we can read precious promises. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What gives you the right to claim that? That was written to Israel. You're not a Jew. What gives you the right to put Psalm 23 on a picture and post it on your wall as if it's for you? 
Here's what gives you the right. Your Savior is a Jew. And all of those promises and blessings are His. And when you come to believe on Jesus Christ, you are made one with Him. And through Jesus, you are grafted into the tree. And every one of those precious blessings given to God's people are now given to you. Let's as, just take a moment, and I want you to bask in the glory of the three great changes that we're told here has taken place for us because we are now in Christ. Do you see that in Hosea? These three, from these quotes that Paul gives us, there are three great changes that have happened for us if we are Christians who have believed on Christ. Number one, we once were not a part of God's people. Now we are a part of God's people. Christian, do you rejoice in this? Do you rejoice that you are now part of the company of the saints? You can read about David striking down Goliath and say that David, he's my brother. I'm connected to him. Abraham, Moses, my brothers. I am also included in the company of the saints. More than that, we now belong to God's people who are on earth right now. Mount Hermon, do you not love this very fellowship of believers? Why do we gather at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Right? Why would you do that? Most people take their naps at this time. Don't we have something here that we're thankful for? That we belong together as a family. Isn't there a joy that you find in being part of Christ's kingdom on earth? There are so many people on this planet right now just trying to make it through life on their own. Disconnected. Lonely. And God has given us the joy of living life together. And as God's children, we are one family. We are brothers and sisters and we get to help each other and love each other and root each other on in this race. We weep together and we pray together and we sing together and we rejoice together. We once were not a part of God's people. But now through Jesus Christ, we belong. and We are a part. Number two, he says, we once were not beloved, but now we are beloved. Don't you love that word? Don't you love that word, beloved? Right? One on whom God has set his special love We were once under the righteous wrath of a holy God. We were once separated by our own sins from God's amazing love. But through Jesus Christ, we are now God's beloved. We're told that our God rejoices over us with singing. That we are precious in the sight of our God. Dear friend, what can mean more to us than this? That God would call us beloved. That's what he calls his own son. That's that's, that's the word God likes to use of Jesus, his, his beloved son. This is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. The very love that God has for his son is more than words can express. And you and I as Christians have been brought into that love. We once were not beloved, 
Now we are called the beloved. Mount Hermon, do you know the great love in which you live and in which you stand? Bask in the love of your Father for you. Live in it. Number three. We're told here that we were once not a part of God's people, but now we are sons of the living God. So do you see the change there? Right? It isn't just that we were once not a part of God's people and now we are a part of God's people. That's great, but it's bigger than that. We were once strangers, aliens. We were not a part of God's people. Now we've been made his sons. We've been adopted into the family and made God's children. Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, has given himself to you as a father to love you and provide for you and protect you and lead you and care for you. What more could you ever ask for than this? Friends, do you ever take time in your own communion with God and just worship him? Because he has loved you this much. Uh, Have you ever had one of those moments where you trusted God's word so much about who you are in Christ and how much God loves you that the Holy Spirit calls God's love for you to just well up in your soul and you felt in in your own body the very security. It's as if God just gave you a, a huge bear hug. Is that too emotionalistic for, I hope not. I came across this testimony some days ago from the great evangelist Dwight L. Moody. He said, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. I can only say that God revealed himself to me And I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Moody said that he was so overcome by this experience of God's love for him that he actually had to ask God to lit up a little because he was afraid that if God did not, he would die. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced God's love for you quite so powerfully as that. But if you are in Jesus Christ, God's love for you as a father is stronger than you can imagine. Do you know that you cannot be more loved right now than you are? You cannot be. There is is no greater amount of love that you could have than the love that you have right now through God your father. You cannot be more cherished. You cannot be more well cared for and well provided for than you are right now. Because God is working every moment for your good and he will bring you to himself. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. I would encourage you, just take some time, maybe at home later, to look at verses 25 and 26 and just bask in the three changes that have happened to you through Christ. Now, I want to close our rest of our time by mentioning four of the implications that I talked about at the beginning. Okay? Four implications from those I spoke of at the beginning. So number one, note the breadth of God's mercy. God's grace does not stop at the borders of Palestine. His mercy is not just for one ethnic group among the seven billion people on this planet. 
No, the great news that Paul is sharing in these verses is that God's mercy reaches to the peoples of Africa and the peoples of Asia and the peoples of South America, to the peoples of Europe, to the peoples of Australia, to the peoples of North America. I read this week about a missionary woman living among mountain shepherds in Central Asia. I read about missionaries now using cell phones and micro SD cards to share Bible stories read aloud to people in China who are illiterate, but they all have phones. And so they can give them these SD cards where they can hear the Bible read to them in their language. The reason thousands of Christian missionaries are scattered all over this world is that they have this conviction that God's grace extends to the Gentiles and that there is hope for every nation, every culture, every language, every ethnic background. God is calling people from all over the world to himself. It was this that that was part of Paul becoming the apostle to the Gentiles. He was gripped with this idea of God bringing Gentiles into the tree, into God's family. We're going to see it towards the end of Romans. Romans 15, verse 20, Paul says, Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul had a dream of seeing Gentiles from all kinds of peoples come to know his Savior. Friends, there is a wideness in God's mercy. There is a breadth to the mercy of God. Second, related to this, we should hear in this passage a call to missionary endeavor. A call to missionary endeavor. It is not enough to rejoice that God's plan of salvation includes people being saved from all over the earth. Rejoicing is good. But if this is God's plan and mission, then it must also be the mission of God's church on earth. If this is God's mission, then it must be our mission. There is a reason that Romans 10 comes after Romans 9. What's Paul about to say in Romans 10? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There is a call to missions here. And I would just ask us, how are we doing And praying for the missionaries in this world. Are you lifting them up before God? Are we interceding for them before the throne of grace as we should? Do you keep yourself informed on how the work of missions is progressing in the world? Do you know specific prayer needs that you can lift up before God? Do you give to the cause of missions? Do you take on the role of a sender seeking to sustain those who are out there doing the hard work? Could it be that God might be calling someone here to leave the comfort and the warmth of this church family 
to go take the gospel to a place where the name of Jesus has not yet been named. The cause of missions is at the heart of God and it ought to be at the heart of us as well. Note third, that there is a call here to put an end to all racism and an end to all ethnocentrism among God's people. Racism, uh, being prejudiced against people because they have a different skin color. Ethnocentrism, being prejudiced against people because they come from a different ethnic group or have different customs than you. We have just learned that God is calling people from among the nations. He's calling them from among the Gentiles. And these people that they come from all over are being brought together into one body, one family, one tree, one kingdom. They are together the vessels of mercy. They are together the offspring of Abraham. They are together the true Israel. And so we as Christians must learn to be comfortable and happy with people who look different than we look, who talk different than we talk, who have customs that are different than ours. The gospel is meant to bring peace to people from differing backgrounds. The gospel unites us around Jesus Christ and makes us one. And so we need to put away all pride, all egotism, and all prejudice. Let us put away anything that would keep us from sharing the gospel with any person of any stripe. Let us throw away anything that would keep us from treating as brother and sister Christians from all kinds of backgrounds. So this past week, many of you had off for the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. And I'm sure most of you have now heard about the audio recording that was discovered this past year uh, in which Martin Luther King Jr. gave um, what he spoke at the gymnasium in Rocky Mount on November 27th, 1962. And it's a big deal because it turns out that before he gave his I Have a Dream speech out at the National Mall in Washington, D.C., nine months before... He famously gave part of that speech here in Rocky Mount. And it's the first recorded time that we know of that he gave the I Have a Dream speech. Just listen to a snippet, just a snippet of what he said. This is what he said back at Rocky Mount High School in the gymnasium back in 1962. He said, and so my friends of Rocky Mount, I have a dream tonight. It is a dream rooted deeply in the American dream. I have a dream that one day down in Sasser County, Georgia, where they burned two churches down a few days ago because Negroes wanted to register and vote, one day right down there, little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and little white girls and walk the streets as brothers and sisters. I have a dream that one day right here in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, The sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will meet at the table of brotherhood, knowing that out of one blood God made all men to dwell upon the face of the earth. I have a dream that one day men all over this nation will recognize that all men were created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. I have a dream tonight that one day the words of Amos will become real. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. 
Now, Herman, I quote that just to ask this question. What has the power to make that dream a reality? What has the power to bring black people and white people together hand in hand as brothers and sisters? What has the power to bring former slaves and former slave owners together at a table of brotherhood? Is it not the gospel of Jesus Christ? By the grace of God, people of all skin colors and all stations of life are brought together as one into the family of Jesus Christ. And for all eternity, we will live in peace as one family. Legislation may have its place. Education has its place. But ultimately, there is only one thing powerful enough to bring different people together and to make them truly, harmoniously one. And that is the mercy of God given to sinners in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Fourth and finally, note in these verses that there is hope for the despairing soul. There is hope for the despairing soul. Perhaps you are here this morning and you are looking at things the way some of the Gentiles in the first century were looking at them. There can't be any hope for me. God's salvation might be for those people over there, but God's salvation isn't open to me. For the Jews, yes. For me, no. And yet this passage teaches that God's grace is for every person whom God calls. And perhaps even right now, God might be calling you to himself. Dear friend, I don't care what sins are in your life. I don't care how badly you've messed up. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Rest in Him and trust in Him for your salvation. Through Jesus and Jesus alone, you can come to know the God of boundless mercy. And you can have Him as your Father. And you can be included among those who are called His beloved. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.